In Acts chapters 16 and 17, Paul and his traveling companions hit the road. These chapters record some of the events in his second missionary journey, and they are packed full of interesting topics. Today, we'll talk about circumcision, baptism, a python spirit, and the very important question asked by a jailer, what must I do to be saved? Welcome to episode 58. We are in Acts chapter 16, and we're asking the question, what must I do to be saved? This is Greg Hall, and we are working our way through the book of Acts. And the two chapters for today's episode are packed full of interesting stuff. And I can't wait to jump in and get going. But before we do, just a quick reminder that I am building a launch team for my forthcoming book, Rethinking Rest. There are lots of folks that have already jumped on board and are reading through an advanced copy of the book. And if that sounds interesting at all to you, just head over to RethinkingScripture.com, click on the Connect tab, and let me know who you are. I'll get back to you with everything you need to know about the launch team. Then you can decide if it's a right fit for you. Well, let's jump into the second missionary journey and see what we find in these two chapters in Acts. And because these chapters are so packed full of stuff and different topics and different comments that I want to make, I'm going to be a bit more scattered than I usually am on the podcast. So we're going to approach this episode in different sections, and the first section is going to be on circumcision. That's what we talked about in Acts 15 in the Jerusalem Council. And I just find it very interesting that the first thing after the council's decision is a story about Paul circumcising Timothy. The decree that they were sending was that circumcision wasn't necessary. Throughout these two chapters, there is much unrest when Paul enters a city. He will go to the synagogue in that city, and he takes Timothy with him. So who's Timothy? Well, at the beginning of Acts chapter 16, it does tell us. And it says that Timothy was a disciple that lived in Lystra. He was named Timothy, and he was a son of a Jewish woman who was a believer, but his father was a Greek. Verse 2 says that Timothy was well spoken of by the brethren who were in Lystra and Iconium. But then it says that Paul wanted this man to go with him, and he took him and circumcised him because of the Jews who were in those parts, for they all knew that his father was Greek. But didn't we just come out of Acts chapter 15, where the whole Jerusalem council met, and it was a big deal, and they decided that circumcision wasn't required? Well, yeah, we did. So what's going on here? Well, first, Paul is taking that message out to people that haven't heard it yet. They're not a part of the process that happened in Acts 15 with the council. It's going to be brand new news to them. He wants Timothy to go with him because Timothy is part Greek, but also part Jewish. And those are the two people groups that Paul's going to be sending his message to. So Timothy's very valuable, but he's not circumcised yet. So just to get Timothy a seat at the table when he's talking to the Jews that he comes across, he encourages him to become circumcised. And as you know, when Paul enters the city, the first place he goes is to the Jewish table. It's at the synagogues. We see that in Acts 17, verses 1 and 2, where it says, And according to Paul's custom, he went to them, and for three Sabbaths reasoned with them from the Scriptures, explaining and giving evidence that the Christ had to suffer and rise again from the dead, and saying, This Jesus whom I'm proclaiming to you is the Christ. 
And some of them were persuaded and joined Paul and Silas, along with a large number of the God-fearing Greeks and a number of the leading women. Then he does the same thing again in Berea, where in Acts chapter 17, verses 10 and 11, and it says, The brethren immediately sent Paul and Silas away by night to Berea, and when they arrived, they went into the synagogue of the Jews. Now these were more noble-minded than those in Thessalonica, for they had received the word with great eagerness, examining the scriptures daily to see whether these things were so. Therefore, many of them believed, along with a number of prominent Greek women and men. So all that said, I just wanted to point out that we get the sense that Paul didn't have Timothy circumcised to somehow appease the Jews who had already heard about Jesus. He had Timothy circumcised so that he could more easily gain access to those Jews and those God-fearing Greeks that were true believers in God, but that had not yet either heard about Jesus or not gotten the whole story about the Christ's need to suffer and rise again from the dead, and how Jesus had just recently accomplished all of that. To be sure, it was a tricky situation. The Jerusalem Council's decision was an in-house discussion, but there were lots of people who had a saving faith, and also those who did not have faith in God that were not yet a part of that in-house discussion. So Paul had Timothy circumcised. It got him a place at the table, and it allowed for the conversation that needed to take place for the gospel to be shared. And I personally, I find this compelling. The example that Timothy gives us, I just find it compelling because there are probably lots of things that I have freedom to do within my relationship with God. And yet, if the purpose is to get that message in front of people that need to hear it, I don't know that I'm always as willing as Timothy was to make some sacrifice in my life. I'll just be brutally honest with you. But I think that's what the Bible is calling us to. If we really believe this story to be true, there may be some times in our lives where we have to give up freedoms that we have been given in Christ and become all things to all people so that we can at least have a seat at the table to tell the story of the Christ. So circumcision was the first segment in this episode, and now we're transitioning to a couple different ones. I want to mention the they-we again. Now, I mentioned this a few chapters ago, but here we are in Acts chapter 16, verses 6, and then again in verse 10. And this is the first of the they-we passages where Luke seems to finally join the group that Paul's traveling with. So again, just to remind you, in Acts 16.6, it says they passed through these different regions and having been forbidden by the Spirit to speak the word in Asia. But then just a few verses later in verse 10, it says, when he had seen the vision, immediately we sought to go to Macedonia. And then there's a we again in verse 11 and a we again in verse 12 and two we's in 13. And it's clear that the author Luke, starting in verse 10, is including himself in the group that Paul's traveling with. But seemingly back in verse 6, he wasn't yet a part of the group. I didn't want to just pass over because that's kind of a major thing. And what it means is this. Luke has been filling in the gaps up until this point. 
The whole story that Luke is telling us up until this point, he's getting second hand. He's hearing it from reliable sources, but he is telling a story of which he had not yet been a part of. And moving forward, what we see is Luke is a part of that group. He comes in and out, but Luke is generally a part of this group moving forward. So those are the they, we passages, and I just wanted to bring them to your attention before we move too quickly through these chapters. Moving on, the next topic. I want to talk about baptism a little bit. We've got a couple examples of baptism from within this story, specifically Acts 16, that I want to mention. First, uh, let's just read from Acts 16, 14, and 15. And this section of scripture discusses the baptism of Lydia and her family, which seems to have happened pretty quickly after she came to accept Paul's message. Here, let's read Acts 16, starting in verse 14. It says, A woman named Lydia from the city of Thyatira, a seller of purple fabrics, a worshiper of God, was listening, and the Lord opened her heart to respond to the things spoken by Paul. So before we even go to the next verse and hear the rest of her story, I just want you to notice how she is being described. A worshiper of God, okay? That's how Luke is choosing to describe her well after the events happened. Luke is here, he's witnessing it, and then later he writes it down. Could have chosen to describe her any way he wanted to, to make sure it was clear who it is we're talking about. And he describes her as a worshiper of God. This is before Paul even shows up. She was listening to Paul. And it says the Lord opened her heart to respond to the things spoken by Paul. So the question I'm going to ask you is, is she coming to an initial faith? Can we even tell that by the way it's described? Well, it does say she's a worshiper of God. And had that been a false worship, like a worship of God that didn't include faith originally, I think Luke would have told us that. It almost seems deceptive if Luke is trying to tell us that she's a worshiper of God, but that it's not a true saving faith that she already has. Why would he even mention it to begin with? Or why wouldn't he describe her as a person that worshiped God but didn't have a faith? Just the way he describes her, we're being invited to see her as a woman of faith to begin with. And then what the Lord does with a woman that already has a faith relationship with him, as Paul is speaking, the Lord opens her heart to respond to the things that Paul is speaking, the new information that Paul has that she does not yet know. And then in verse 15, the very next verse, it says, And when she and her household had been baptized, she urged us, saying, If you have judged me to be faithful to the Lord, come to my house and stay. And she prevailed upon us. The very first thing that happened after she accepted the message that Paul was giving is that she and her household were baptized. And I just want to invite you to start reading passages like this where people are described in terms where it seems like they have a saving faith to begin with, it's those people that are just naturally going to have a proclivity to hear what Paul is saying and accept it as truth. They're already on the team. They're just getting the update that they need to proceed forward with this new group that's being created, followers of Christ Jesus. We see it again towards the end of the chapter with the jailer. Acts 16, starting in verse 32, it says, And they spoke the word of the Lord to him together with all who were in his house. And he took them that very hour of the night and washed their wounds. And immediately he was baptized, 
he and all his household. Now, we'll talk in a little more detail in the next section about what was the spiritual condition of this jailer before Paul met him in the jail there. But before we move on to that, I just want to point out that throughout Scripture, baptism is presented as the initial sign of inclusion into the new covenant. It's not saying a prayer. It's not standing up in a crowd. It's not speaking in tongues. It's baptism. The pictorial symbolism of death, burial, and resurrection that happens when someone goes under the water and comes back up, it's an important way to visually display what has happened spiritually. And biblically speaking, baptism is the initial sign of someone aligning themselves with a message of the resurrected Jesus. It was the initial sign then, and it still should be now. And to the extent that it isn't practiced that way, we probably should make an effort to work towards that goal. We can reframe what baptism is within our culture and encourage those who come to an initial faith to take part in this sign. Baptism seems to have taken a back seat. Culturally, it's become acceptable to wait years after the initial faith conversion. That was the way it was for me and my wife, Lisa. We had been believers since our childhood. And it was only after we got married and heard a very compelling sermon about baptism that we decided it was time. And to be honest, we were a little embarrassed that it had taken so long. So I don't know your story. I don't know if you're a person of faith. I don't know when that faith may have shown up if you are. But what I do know just from reading scripture and two examples right here in Acts chapter 16 is that for some reason, those in the early church viewed baptism as an important step after someone came to accept the message of Jesus. So, if that describes you, and you've accepted the message of Jesus, you hold to it in faith, and you haven't yet taken the opportunity to get baptized, I would just encourage you to look into that and do that. It's not only an important step for you, but it's also a very important visual message sent out to the world for everyone that sees it happen. Acts 16 is just chock full of interesting little tidbits. We're going to talk right now about Acts 16.16. Let me read it to you first, and then we'll go into a little explanation. It says, It happened that as we were going to the place of prayer, a slave girl having a spirit of divination met us, who was bringing her masters much profit by fortune-telling. Following after Paul and us, she kept crying out, saying, These men are bondservants of the Most High God, who are proclaiming to you the way of salvation. She continued doing this for many days, but Paul was greatly annoyed and turned and said to the Spirit, I command you in the name of Jesus Christ to come out of her. And it came out at that very moment. Then it talks about how mad her masters were because she no longer was able to make them so much money. But it's the description of this girl earlier in the passage that caught my attention this last week. I'm going to read to you from a couple different resources on this. First, Moyer Hubbard, in the article he wrote titled Greek Religion, and this is in the world of the New Testament, cultural, social, and historical context. It's out of Baker Academic. 
Hubbard says, this passage describes a curious incident during Paul's first visit to Philippi, where the apostle exercises a spirit from a young prophetess. The girl trails Paul and his companions around Philippi, shouting, These men are servants of the Most High God, who proclaim to you the way of salvation. And for those familiar with the Old Testament, the expression Most High God sounds like a reference to the one true God. We see that in Genesis 14.18, Psalm 78.35, and Daniel 5.18. But, Hubbard says, Luke tells us that Paul becomes greatly annoyed, verse 18, at her proclamation. It appears unlikely that the prophetess intends a reference to the God of the Jews. And even more doubtful that residents of Philippi would interpret her words in this way. So this is kind of interesting to me. He says, in fact, archaeological work has uncovered an abundance of evidence in this area attesting to the worship of a pagan deity known as the Most High God, the same terminology used by this prophetess. Dedicatory inscriptions to this deity have been found all throughout Macedonia, and the high concentration of epigraphs in this region leads some historians to conclude that this cult originated here. Hubbard concludes this way, given this background, Paul's annoyance becomes more comprehensible. Not only is the apostle wary of having a pagan prophetess as his publicity agent, but he also understands the confusing and highly ambiguous nature of her press release. So that from Hubbard talking about just the existence of a pagan god referred to as the most high god. And how many times have I read this passage thinking that she was proclaiming the truth about who they were representing and that Paul was annoyed by that? And how many different scenarios had I come up with to explain away why Paul was annoyed at her proclaiming the truth? But it turns out it's very likely that she was confusing the truth. And now Paul's annoyance just seems natural to me. And that's not just the only tidbit out of this little passage. Uh, The description of the slave girl, the type of spirit that she had, I originally read it to you out of the NASB, and it says, a slave girl having a spirit of divination met us. And now I'm going to share with you a little bit out of Dean Depp's All Roads Lead to the Text, Eight Methods of Inquiry into the Bible, where he makes some comments about this passage as well. He says, where the NIV of Acts 16 reports that she had a spirit by which she predicted the future, the Greek specifically claims that she had a python spirit. What's a python spirit? Depp explains that through performing just a basic search of electronic dictionaries, we can discover that the New Bible Dictionary quotes Plutarch as Greco-Roman background and informs us that the worship of Apollo was embedded at Delphi in a snake, the python. Plutarch, who had been a priest at Delphi, speaks of such soothsayers as ventriloquists, who uttered words beyond their own control. In addition, the Anchor Bible Dictionary explains this. According to Greek myth, the python was the serpent or dragon, that inspired and guarded the oracle at Delphi. The creature was slain by the god Apollo. The word python came to mean a divining spirit. 
So the girl's revelation is that Paul and Silas are servants of the Most High God. Since the ethnic background of Philippi is not Jewish, hearers would not think of Yahweh, but Apollo as the Most High God. And through her words, the gospel of Christ was being undermined, and Apollo, the god behind the python spirit, was receiving the credit. Depp concludes, The historical background offers an additional insight into conflicts that were occurring at Philippi. So breaking away from Depp, I spent some time just looking at different English translations of this verse to see kind of how it's handled. We can do that uh, just on the internet, and I'll talk about that in just a minute. First, this spirit that the girl has is described as a spirit of divination in the NASB, the ESV, the New King James, NRSV, KJV, and the ASV. All of those use spirit of divination. The NIV speaks of a spirit by which she predicted the future. Then it's interesting because you get into some of the other more literal translations and you see behind the English translation a little bit. Young's literal translation says a spirit of Python. It actually brings it straight through to the English. Now that doesn't really help us if we don't know the background, but it does maybe signal to us that there might be a little bit more study needed to figure out what that means. I found a translation that's not very common. It's called a liberal translation of the New Testament, and it reads this way for this verse. It happened one day as we were going to the oratory, a maidservant who is believed to be possessed with the spirit of the Pythian Apollo met us. Now, that seems really specific. And the reason I like specific translations is that they don't try and solve all the problems for the reader. I appreciate the spirit of divination. I use the NASB most times when I read. But I also like this idea of bringing the Greek all the way through sometimes and allowing us to see what it is. And that allows us again to ask the question, what in the world are they talking about? And with the internet, it's super easy. There's this really cool thing out there. It's called the World Wide Web. And I connected myself to this web of information, and I just simply searched Acts 16.16 in multiple translations. That's what I put down. And one of the links that was available sent me to BibleStudyTools.com. Not sure I've ever been there before. And there are other sites that will do the exact same thing, so there's nothing special about this one. But when I got there and I plugged in Acts 16.16, I got multiple translations for that verse. The fifth one down was a translation called The Complete Jewish Bible. And here's how it reads. Once, when we were going to the place where the minion gathered, we were met by a slave girl who had in her a snake spirit that enabled her to predict the future. Darby, another older translation, was also listed there. And the Jubilee Bible 2000, both of those mention a Pythian spirit. And along with all those very specific uh, bringing the Greek through translations, I also saw the message. And I don't mean to poo-poo the message. It's a great translation if used appropriately. But here's what the message says for this. It calls the girl a psychic who performed fortune telling. While that may be an understandable picture brought into our culture, that really brings nothing of the original context to light.
Well, to close out today's episode, I'd like to focus in a little bit more on the story of Paul and Silas's imprisonment. It begins in chapter 16, verse 22, and we're going to kind of follow it all the way through to verse 31, where the jailer asks a pretty important question. What must I do to be saved? But before we get to that question, I just want to point out that the story of Paul and Silas's imprisonment, the way Luke tells it, he's using the mythos. Uh, you got to go back a couple episodes uh, to get the full context of this. But he's using the story of their imprisonment to proclaim the truth of the Logos. And the way he does that is he brings up characteristics of their episode that are similar to the characteristics of Jesus's episode on the cross. Here, let me just, I'm not going to read all of it, but let me just point out a few things. In verse 22, it says that the chief magistrates tore their robes off them, that they had beaten them with rods, that they struck them with many blows, that they threw them into prison, and that they had them guarded securely. When they were in the inner prison, verse 24, Paul and Silas's feet were fastened, in my translation it says, in the stocks. But there's a little footnote on the word stocks, and if you hover over it, it says literally wood. So you've got Paul and Silas. They're naked. They're beaten. They're thrown into prison. Their feet are attached to the wood. What Luke is doing is inviting us to see Paul and Silas's story in terms that reflect the story of Jesus. Paul will later say that he has been crucified with Christ. And we know that that's not a literal statement because Paul's still alive and he never was hanging on the cross with Jesus. So it's a metaphorical statement that Luke then as he retells Paul's story, invites us to see the way he's been crucified with Christ, that he experiences similar things that Jesus experienced. How does he do this in the rest of the story? In verse 26, Luke mentions that there was a great earthquake and that the foundations of the prison house were shaken. All the doors were opened and everyone's chains were unfastened. And the jailer who was awoken comes and he calls for light to be shed on the situation. So without going into any more detail, I just wanted to mention that this is yet another example of how the biblical authors can tell the story of Jesus through the story of their followers. And it's that jailer that called for the lights that rushed in. And he was trembling because he thought everybody had escaped. But they had said, don't harm yourself. We're all here. And it was that jailer that fell down before Paul and Silas. He brought them out, and then he asked a very important question. And he said, sirs, what must I do to be saved? And if you read the story before, you probably know the answer. Verse 31, they said back to him, believe in the Lord Jesus, and you will be saved, you and your household. And they spoke the word of the Lord to him together with all who were in his house. And he took them that very hour, washed their wounds, and that's when they were baptized. So it's this question, what must I do to be saved? The answer is believe in the Lord Jesus. That's a great answer. That's the answer that we want to camp on in our day and age. We want that to be the only thing that's required of people. But as I've done some research in the New Testament, there are five different times that similar questions are asked, and it seems like they get different responses. Let me remind you of a few of these. Matthew 19, there's a rich young ruler, and do you remember the question that he asks? He says, teacher, what good thing must I do that I may obtain eternal life? 
kind of similar to what must I do to be saved. And do you remember what Jesus said to the rich young ruler? Believe in the Lord Jesus. And you, oh, wait a minute. Jesus tells this guy to keep the commandments. And then the guy has a few questions like, which ones? (laughs) That would be me. Which ones? And Jesus said, don't commit murder. Don't commit adultery. Don't steal. Don't bear false witness. Honor your father and mother. Love your neighbor as yourself. Now, am I the only one asking the question, why is this response different than Paul and Silas's response? Most people think the rich young ruler is an unbeliever prior to coming to Jesus and that he leaves sad because he doesn't ever come to a true and saving faith. But what is Jesus doing when he responds that way? It seems like a works answer, but we really like our faith answer from the jailer, and this seems to be a little bit of a conundrum. Well, one of the ways you get around this in our modern setting is you have to conclude Jesus probably knows what it is that this guy has a hang-up with. Because later in the same thing, the young man said to him, I've kept all these things. I've done everything that you just said, all those commandments. What am I still lacking? And here's, oh, here's a great time for Jesus just to say, believe in the Lord Jesus and you will be saved, right? But no, (laughs) if you wish to be complete, go and sell your possessions and give to the poor and you will have treasure in heaven. And then come and follow me. Well, let me just ask the obvious question. Where is faith in this? Where's the faith answer? The simple believe. It's not here. And you can argue that, yeah, Jesus probably knew that this guy had a hang-up with possessions and he was outlining the one thing that he needed to give up to come to faith. Those are the answers that we've come up with to help explain the process. But I think I have a better answer. I think the rich young ruler coming to Jesus is already a person of faith. I think the question that he's asking is materially different than what the jailer is asking. And that's why he gets a different response. Jesus is giving a believer a sanctifying response, challenging that person to go deeper in a faith that's already been developed. That's really the only way that that response makes any sense in our modern-day understanding of how it is we get saved. I mean, I would not have responded the same way Jesus did if I thought the person, the rich young ruler, was desiring to come to an initial faith. I would not ever do that. I spent 10 years in the pastorate at a church. I would never respond to someone that was seeking Jesus and faith and tell them to go sell everything they own and start following the commandments. And it's through those actions that they would be saved and find eternal life. That's not an appropriate response. But that's the one Jesus gives, and we can backtrack ourselves into understanding that this gentleman was probably coming from a different perspective to begin with. Here, I wrote down some other examples that I found. John 6, 25 through 29. Got a group of people following Jesus around. And it says, when they found him on the other side of the sea, they said to him, Rabbi, when did you get here? And he says, you seek me because you saw the signs ate the loaves, and were filled. And then Jesus says, Do not work for the food which perishes, but for the food which endures to eternal life. Eternal life. That's the same topic that the rich young ruler was asking about. And then he says, Which the Son of Man will give you. And then they ask the question. And their version of the question is this, What shall we do so that we may work the works of God? 
Now, that's a question that I would expect Jesus to start listing commandments and say, go sell everything you own, right? They're asking specifically, what is the work that we can do so that we can work the works of God? And Jesus comes up with a response that I didn't expect. Here, it says, this is the work of God, that you believe in him who he has sent. Jesus gives the faith answer. He gives the believe answer. That's the jailer's answer from Paul and Silas. How do we explain the difference? The difference has to be in the initial position of the people asking the question. So we've talked about four of the five that I found. We've got the rich young ruler. We've got the crowd that followed Jesus after the feeding of the 5,000. We've got the lawyer that asks, what shall I do to inherit eternal life? And the jailer. But before Jesus even showed up, John the Baptist had a full-blown ministry. And if you remember, his ministry was preaching a baptism of repentance for the forgiveness of sins. Again, people assume that non-believers are going out to John the Baptist in the wilderness, which honestly doesn't make a whole lot of sense. If I've got the temple in Jerusalem and I'm a non-believer, but I'm Jewish, I'm just going to stick around the temple. That's what makes most sense because I don't really believe this stuff anyway. So who is it that's going to make the trek out into the wilderness, the desert, and follow a guy that's talking crazy and dressing crazy and eating crazy. There's got to be something different about this group that follows John the Baptist to where he preaches. And what does he preach? Well, the crowds were questioning him, and they ask, then what shall we do? What is it that we shall do? When you're preaching repentance, what is it that you're asking us to do? And he would answer and say to them, this is out of Luke 3, verse 11, the man who has two tunics is to share with him who has none, and he who has food is to do likewise. And then it says some tax collectors also came to be baptized. Now, we are pre-programmed, if we've read the Bible at all, to read tax collectors as synonymous with unbelievers. But here you've got a group of tax collectors that also came to be baptized. Is it possible that there are tax collectors at the time of John the Baptist and Jesus' ministries that are already people of faith? Well, of course it is. One of the disciples is a tax collector that already has a saving faith and recognizes Jesus as soon as he calls him. And how do I know that these people are already saved? Because it's the tax collectors that ask John the Baptist, what shall we do? And he says to them, believe. No, he doesn't. He says, collect no more than what you have been ordered to. And then some soldiers were questioning him. What about us? What shall we do? And he said to them, do not take money from anyone by force or accuse anyone falsely and be content with your wages. The repetition of these questions, what shall we do, coming from people in different positions within their culture, the answer that John the Baptist gave each of them were action-oriented answers. They were works answers. They were similar to go sell everything you own, follow the commandments, and follow Jesus. And that's exactly what John says. They ask him if he's the Christ, and he said, no, I baptize you with water, but there's somebody coming right after me on my heels, and I'm not fit to untie the thong of his sandals. He's going to baptize you with the Holy Spirit and with fire. So what must we do to be saved? It's a great question, and the question is asked often in the New Testament. And the answer is different based on the spiritual positioning of the person asking the question. And I would suggest to you that that applies to us today as well. What must we do to be saved? The word saved 
In the New Testament, the Greek word sozo, it's used in a number of different ways, and sometimes it refers to that initial faith experience, the justification faith of someone first experiencing faith in God. But that same Greek word is also used to describe the sanctifying process of being saved through the faith that we already have, becoming more like Christ. And depending on who's asking me the question, what must I do to be saved? What the Bible suggests is that there can be two responses to that. If someone doesn't have faith yet, that's the most important thing. Believe. Believe in Jesus and you will be saved. And later, from a discipleship standpoint, if someone comes and asks the question, what must I do to continue being saved? That's really the question that's being posed by a believer then it's appropriate to bring responses to the table that challenge people to become more like Christ, to challenge them to change behavior. And sometimes it's through that behavior change that people experience a new type of salvation, a deeper understanding of their salvation. Well, Acts 16 and 17, that's all I got for today. Thanks for taking time out of your busy schedule to give this episode a listen. I really appreciate it. We're going to continue our way through the book of Acts, hopefully ending somewhere near the end of the calendar year. So go ahead and get your Bibles out and do some pre-reading, and I'll be back with another episode shortly. Oh, and in the meantime, if you're not ready to be a part of my launch team quite yet, would you consider rating, reviewing, or even recommending to a friend the Rethinking Scripture podcast?